Romans, please. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for the anointing of your Spirit upon us, for the speaking of the word and the hearing of the word. We pray that, Lord, you would deliver us all from the interference of flesh. Deliver us, Lord, from ourselves we want to pray for your help for the speaking of your word that what is brought forth might be of you for lord only that which is of you will bless your people we need your help lord we are weak feeble lord changeable but we thank you that thou changest not and lord we are asking for your help we thank you that we can depend on you our rock and our salvation Please lead us in this time, Lord. Grant your word to be heard, Lord, by means of your Spirit, quickening that word in us and granting faith to us. Grant this, we ask, Father, in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen. Well, over the last, I don't know how many weeks, I've been bringing the word of God. I've been sharing with you from the book of Ephesians, which, God willing, I plan to continue doing in the new year. And what a great chapter it is. And there's so much in there. We could camp there for so many months, even years. There's just so much in that uh, first chapter for us to meditate upon and dwell upon. Uh, but for this morning, I felt led to speak on Romans 8 and verse 28 um, the reason, one of the reasons being during the week I was uh, sharing on this verse online um, in an online meeting with a company of believers and um, I just felt quickened that I should bring it this morning as well. And really this um, verse is a good one for us to dwell upon considering the kind of year that we have had. As you know, we, who would have thought on January the 1st, 2020, we would have had the kind of year that we have had? But there's been so much that has happened that has been unprecedented in our history. We see things like lockdowns happening and all kinds of things, global things happening. And... Uh, Yet the glorious fact is, nothing that has happened has taken the Lord by surprise. The Lord sees and declares the end from the beginning. He is not anxious. He is not fretful. He is on the throne. And nothing happens without his say-so. And you know, when things like this happen, we can all get very anxious and fearful or we can, if we're not careful, be get, uh, get ourselves swallowed up, as it were, in what the enemy is doing in all this. And that's a danger in and of itself. Whilst we must be mindful and alert 
and not ignorant of his devices, neither are we to be believers that are fascinated with what he's doing. Otherwise, that will end you, uh, end up all of us getting into all kinds of conspiracy theories that we can't prove and do not actually aid us in our walk with God. We must be alert and aware, keeping our eyes on the news, but primarily your eyes and my eyes should be on the Lord Jesus himself because he's the only one who tells the truth all the time. And if your eyes are on what men say all the time, you will come disillusioned. We need to have our eyes fixed and focused on the Lord and see things from his perspective. For he is in control of all things. Praise the Lord. But I realize that not only this year have we been through things that are unparalleled in our history nationally and internationally, but also within the congregation there's been a number of us that have been through various difficulties and uh, problems and illnesses and struggles, haven't we? Um, We know we can name the people that have been through a lot of difficulties this year. And I felt in the light of that and in the light of what we've all gone through as a nation, it's good for us to come back to verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Do you not love the way that Paul speaks? He says, and we know He doesn't say, and we should believe, or we should hope for. This is a statement that is, it's an emphatic statement. It's something that we know. What Paul is about to say is a truth that we should know as believers. Because, dear friends, the Christian life isn't simply us assimilating more and more knowledge in a theoretical fashion. The Christian life is something to experience and something to know. Isn't it wonderful that knowing God isn't just about learning information about him, it's about having a living experience with him. It's about being able to call God Father. It's a relationship. Imagine if you were married to somebody that you simply just lived to get information about. What kind of relationship would that be? You might know a lot of things about them theoretically, but not by means of experience. But the Christian life is to do with things that we come to know. It's sure. And Paul says... We know some things. And what is it he says we know in this particular passage? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know that all things work together for good. Now, Paul doesn't say, and we know that some things work together for good. Neither does he say we know most things work together for good. He actually says, we know all things work together for good. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it? But it's something that we need to take to heart because it means concerning our lives that everything is arranged, supervised, overseen by the Lord himself. Nothing is left, as it were, to fate or, or to coincidence or happenstance with God. He works all things for good. But the question we then need to ask is, well, who does he work all things for good for? Is it for anybody does God work all things for good to any, anybody we, in the world? And the answer to that, of course, 
is no. The truth of the matter is that there are conditions attached here. This is for a specific people. God works all things together for good for a specific people. Not just for anybody. So the question is, who does he work things good for? Well, essentially, for the true believer and follower of the Lord Jesus. Look what it goes on to say. All things work together for good to those, firstly, who love God. Those who love God. I wonder if you love God this morning. If you're a lover of God, if you're truly a lover of God, it means that God is working out everything in your life unto good. We shall come back to the meaning of, what, of that a bit later. But it's for those who love God. So what, how do we know whether we love God? For if we love God, God works all things together for good. I want to know I love God. How can I be sure I love him? Well, there is, of course, our devotion. There is, of course, our singing of his praises, our praying, our reading the word, all these things. But essentially, you find within the word that the evidence that you love God is in your keeping of his word. And this is what the scriptures say in John chapter 14 and verse 21. might want to turn there with me. John chapter 14 and verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Go down to verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is the evidence that I love the Lord? How is that outworked? Well, the Lord Jesus clearly says to his disciples that the evidence that I love God is that I keep his word. In other words, dear friends, that I'm living in obedience to the word of God. Actually, John states this again in his first epistle and chapter 5 and verse 3. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. We read this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Friends, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, that we, that we watchful over them, that we take them to heart, that we guard them. That's the evidence that I love the Lord outwardly. And of course it's the evidence that I'm truly born of God. You know, dear friends, the scriptures speak amazingly of this matter of obedience. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, you read this, to obey is better than sacrifice. You can give your body to be burnt. But if you're not living in obedience with God... It will not profit you anything. And so many Christians get into, if they're not careful, forms of asceticism, which is the belief that if I make things hard on myself, I'm going to be pleasing to God. That simply is not what the Word of God teaches. Neither is God pleased with such sacrifices because they are sacrifices that are, in a sense, a form of self-worked righteousness. And all our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is only one means to being righteous with God, and that is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're made right with God through what Jesus has done on the cross 2,000 years ago when he said it is finished. There's nothing we can add to the work of God, no matter how sacrificial and noble it may appear. If it's something we're seeking to add on to the sacrifice of God, it's but a dead work, friends. It will profit us nothing before God. The Lord is not interested so much in our self-work sacrifice as in our obedience to his word. 
And the wonderful thing is, friends, if only you and I could grasp the nature of the God that we worship, we wouldn't be fearing what is God going to require of me because we know that whatever God requires of me, it's for my good. And he is my Father in heaven. And the glorious reality is that if I obey the commandments of God, I will find that they are not burdensome. They won't be grievous to me. And you'll find that really, that the friends, the blessings that come from obedience, I would say to you, are disproportionate to the obedience. God blesses us far beyond our obedience to him. To obey is better Now it might be, and it probably will be, indeed we are sure it will be, that within your obedience to God there will be sacrifice involved at times. But the fact is that you being able to fulfill that sacrifice will be through the power of the Lord's grace and therefore the glory will go to the Lord. It won't be a dead work. It will be the Lord working in you to enable you to do what he requires of you. And therefore, it won't be a self-work righteousness, but it would be the means of your becoming more like Jesus. This is the wonderful thing about the Lord. Well, do we love God? Do we love him? If we love him, we will obey him. Okay, we know at times... We slip up, right? There are times when we fail. There are times when we disobey the Lord. Which one of us here can claim sinless perfection right now? None of us. None of us. We know we're a work in progress. And thank God if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the Lord then wants us to learn by his strength to be changed and to no longer revisit the sins of our youth or go back to the ways of the world, but go on with Jesus. It is sin that ruins the life. Sin ruins people. The way of the Lord never ruined anybody. I've never known anybody who's obeyed the Lord that has ended their life feeling disillusioned. But there's been those that have lived the lie of the world and been completely disillusioned, even though they had all the world. If you have the world, what is the point if you lose your soul? We come into this world with nothing, and we leave this world with nothing. But what is treasured up in all eternity remains. Build up treasure in heaven. Set your mind on things eternal. Encourage your heart in the ways above. Well, firstly, we know all things work together for those who love God. And secondly, for those who are called according to his purpose. According to his purpose. Who are the ones that love God? the ones that are called according to his purpose. Do you realize, my dear brothers and sisters, that you love God because God first loved you? Actually, God first called you. And you didn't firstly call on the Lord, the Lord called you. And you didn't find the Lord because the Lord was never lost, but you were. (laughs) And I was, we were lost. I didn't find Jesus. He found me. I was the sheep that was astray. I was the one who needed finding, not Jesus. And I was lost in my sin. I was blinded by the darkness of this world. How could I possibly see anyway? I was blind. Groping in the dark, if you like. And then Jesus came to a sinner and said, John, And by the calling of my name, wooed me into his purpose. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
And if you are someone who loves God this morning, someone who loves his word, someone who loves to sing his praise, someone who has forsaken their sin, it is because God has called you. This is something that we don't realize so much in today's society because we tend to have the impression that of ourselves, man is not really that bad. After all, doesn't he do some good things? Some people seem to be better than others. But what is the estimation of God? You see, I need to know what God's estimation is of me and of mankind, not what my estimation is of mankind. For I see from the perspective of somebody who is sick of heart anyway, how can I possibly have a right perspective on whether man is good or not? But only one can, and that's one who's perfect, the Lord himself. And he says that my heart, naturally speaking, is desperately wicked. I'm desperately wicked. My heart is desperately sick. The Bible says that there is none that go after God, friends. There's no one of themselves that will decide, I'm going to follow the Lord. We've all turned each to our own way. We all love our sin. We love darkness rather than light. That is the condition of man before he's saved. Why Paul says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's the condition we're in. You can't get any worse than dead. How's a dead man going to change his ways? He cannot. He cannot move. He cannot touch. He cannot feel. He cannot do anything of himself. He needs, if it's going to come to life, somebody to come to him. And the Lord came to you and called you. You say, I don't remember the Lord specifically calling me. Each of us have different experiences as we come through to, in our salvation with the Lord. We have different kinds of experiences along the way. The way the Lord leads us. We're not robots, are we? Each of us are led a different way to the Lord. But let us remember, it is the Lord that quickens. It is the Lord that gives life. We didn't call the Lord. The Lord called us. And you may, as I say, not have realized this, but actually, when you came through to a new birth, it was because the Lord called you. We do not naturally love God. Paul goes on to show in the next verse or two that the Lord planned this purpose in calling us in eternity past. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. God planned to call you at just the right time. The time of your conversion was not a mistake. God knew when to meet with you. God knows his purpose, his will, his desires and what he's doing. And when he called you, he effected in time that which he purposed in eternity past. And he brought you to salvation. Friends, you only have to read verses like Ezekiel chapter 36 to realize what has actually happened to you if you've been born again of the Spirit. Now in Ezekiel chapter 36, it's speaking about God's purposes with his people Israel. Purposes that will yet come to pass in the future. But he speaks in terms of the new covenant that is relevant to us, for we have come into their covenant. 
And the word of God says in verse 25 that the Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Has the Lord cleansed you? If you're born again of the Spirit, he has cleansed you from all your sin. From all your filthiness and idolatry. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't this what the Lord has done for us? He's given us a new heart. He's put a new spirit within us. We once had a heart of stone, friends. A heart that was stony, rebellious, hard toward God. And the Lord has taken it out, as it were, and given us a heart of flesh that is responsive to God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is a marvelous thing, isn't it, dear friends? The Lord has put his spirit within us. If we're born again of the spirit, we have the spirit. He has come to dwell within us. In order to change us, isn't it amazing that the Holy Spirit resides in the life of the believer? A miracle. Glorious. And then it goes on to say this, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Oh, isn't this a wonderful thing? What a promise to the people of Israel. But also what a promise to us that the Lord causes us to walk in his statutes. This is part of the new covenant. And what does he go on to say? And you will keep my judgments and do them. Now this brings me back to those who love God. Because those who love God keep his commandments. And those who keep his commandments, those who love God, are those who are called of God. And in the new covenant, those that are called of God are those that have received a new heart, have been given the Holy Spirit, and given the grace to walk in a new way according to the word of God, in a way that we didn't walk previously. In the old covenant, the law was written on stone, but in the new covenant, the law gets written in your heart. And in your minds, this is marvelous, because what was on stone was contrary to us in the natural, but God changes us so that what is written is not written on stone, but in our hearts to give us the desire to walk in the ways of God. Isn't the Lord good? Fresh desires, fresh longings, fresh passion, as it were, for spiritual things, those holy affections in you, they weren't put there by you. They were put there by God. In his mercy, he's given you affection for spiritual things. And if you love God, it's because God has enabled you to love him and has broken you free from being bound to your old nature and given you a new nature with an incorruptible seed to be able to overcome sin and the And sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under law, but you're under grace. And the power of that grace supersedes the power of sin. And God in you, by his spirit, enables you to walk in a new way that was contrary to the natural man. What a miracle. You won't come across a greater miracle than the new birth. We're new creations. We've been made new people. A man was evangelizing once, and as he was evangelizing, a communist man interrupted him as he saw a beggar go by, and he said to the evangelist, communism would put a new set of clothes on that man. And the evangelist returned with his word from the Lord immediately. Yes, but the Lord would put a new man in that set of clothes. And that's what the Lord does. He changes us from the inside. He makes us new creatures. We are called according to his purpose. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 speaks about the Lord saying to his people, I will put my law in their minds and write them, write it on their hearts. To paraphrase, do look at that verse if you can at some point. Now, this verse back in Romans chapter 8 And verse 28, 
goes on to say this, that we are called to those who are called, or the called, according to his purpose. According to his purpose. Are you aware, dear brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord, that the Lord has a purpose? You know, in today's Christianity in the West, sadly, much of this purpose seems to be preached in a way that centers on man. Do you know what I mean by that? You have kind of evangelists. Maybe they have pure motives or not. I'm not here to judge. But I think they are deficient perhaps in their knowledge or at least deceived over what they're doing. But they say, come to Jesus. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Come to Jesus and he will make your life really good and exciting. He's got a plan for you. Come to him. And we try to excite people to come to Jesus on the basis of what Jesus has for us. Rather than coming to Jesus on the basis that we're ruined sinners and we desperately need a saviour. It's the kind of preaching of the realization of our ruin that will bring the person to true repentance. What we need is a different kind of gospel preaching today, friends. We need a gospel preaching that in love shows the people that they need to repent because they are lost in their sin and they cannot save themselves. And trying to make people make decisions for Jesus will not necessarily, by any means, assure their conversion. Remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. What we need to say to people is, you cannot be saved unless God meets with you. And when you have that kind of thing, that stirs up a, a sense of burden in some people's hearts. Well, what must we do to be saved? Like on the day of Pentecost. We need a different kind of preaching that isn't man-centered, but God-glorifying. And Jesus doesn't reign in heaven for men, but men should repent to glorify God in heaven. We have a very man-centered Christianity in the West. Self-centered, self-making Christianity that we need by God's grace to be done with. We are not doing a favor for the Lord by repenting of our sins. We are acknowledging our need for God. And dear friends, if there's anybody here, you don't know where you stand with Jesus Christ. You need him. And you need to ask God to help you. That he would open your eyes to your sin. And bring that realization of the darkness of your heart before him, that you might be changed and transformed by his grace. You see, it's not simply that God has a purpose for my life. When the Lord calls me, it's to wrap me up in his purpose. Do you see what I mean, friends? Now, let me put this little caveat in. I am not saying that the Lord does not have a plan or purpose for you in this life. Not at all. God has a plan and purpose for you, each one of us individually. There is no question. If we be called of God, something of his plan and purpose must be worked out in the earth. Don't get me wrong. That is absolutely true. But there's something greater at work in God's heart that goes beyond the span of 70 or 80 years. There's something of a purpose that has to do with eternity. And in fact, the purpose of God is expounded upon a little in verse 29 of chapter, two, chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image 
of his son. What is the purpose of God with you, dear brothers and sisters? It's not simply to bring you to new birth. It's not even to bring you ultimately to his service, but ultimately to conform you to the image of his son. That's what the Lord is wanting to do and is going to do according to his purpose. We need to realize this. He is seeking to fashion us according to his likeness. And one day, one day, we will be like him. What it says in verse 29 that we are his purpose is to conform us to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren conformed, changed into the likeness of Jesus. When is this going to happen, friends? You say, well, I'm already just like Jesus. Would you see me in the vestry afterwards, please? <laughs> right, Philippians 3 and verse 20 shows us. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So, dear friends, something of the purpose of God is to conform us to his glorious body, our lowly body conformed to his glorious body. And when he comes, we shall be changed and we shall have new bodies that will not grow tired or weary or old, as it were. We will have bodies just like his. That means that there'll be glorious bodies, because his body is a glorious body. And if you have aches and pains and all these things now, remember, there's coming a day when your body will be like his glorious body without any imperfections or defects due to the fallen nature of, of mankind. Absolutely like him, outwardly, glorious, eternal, amazing. 1 John 3 says something similar. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Again, speaking about that glorious day when he comes, we shall be like him, we shall have a body like his. Back to Romans 8 and this time verse 22. Romans 8 and verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. What is that? The redemption of our body. Wow. For we were saved in this hope. And so Paul goes on. But dear friends, not only outwardly, by means of a body, which is an expression, physical expression, will we be like Jesus, but also inwardly. Our character will be so changed that we might be those who in our personality are like the Lord Jesus. It would be unfitting for a person who is unregenerate to have a glorified body. Because the character wouldn't be fit into the body.
But we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And the Spirit works in us to change us and to make us in character more like Jesus. And that is the point, in many senses, of our walk here on the earth. It is to make us in our person like Jesus in order that one day when we go to be with the Lord, our character is fitting to take on this body. So you're in the process of sanctification on this earth. If you're born of the Spirit, if you're born of the Spirit, you're in between justification and glorification. And the bridge is sanctification. You're justified before you're sanctified. Thank God for that. (laughs) But one day you're going to be glorified. And it's so sure that you're going to be glorified that Paul uses your glorification as in the past tense. Have you noticed that? It's as though it's already happened. And in the book of Hebrews we read that those who are being sanctified have been perfected forever. That shows you the eternal nature of salvation, doesn't it? (laughs) It's done as it were in heaven. Hallelujah. Such is the Such is the work of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You and I will get there by means of the Lord working in us, won't we? Hallelujah. So the question is, how are we changed? How are we sanctified? Well, it's by means of the incorruptible seed. We certainly know in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4 that we're changed from one degree of glory to another by means of beholding the Lord. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 3.18? Of course you do. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the lord look away from yourself we live in a society that is saturated with being self-centered self-absorbed and it's so easy for us to be swallowed up in that kind of spirit we can become so introspective And God doesn't want us to be introspective people. Yes, we must examine ourselves that we're in the faith, but we must, as believers, continually look away from ourselves and look to Christ. Behold the beauty of the Lord. Behold his majesty. The enemy will do all he can to stop you doing that. He will do that by condemning you about yourself and getting you looking words and saying, you can't look up. You've got to deal with this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And the list seems so long that you feel there's very little point in almost beginning. You're swallowed up in your own condemnation. Friends, don't allow the enemy to dissuade you from looking away from yourself. Look away from yourself. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Behold something of his majesty, something of his beauty, something of his glory, something of his love, something of his compassion, something of his faithfulness. Look at him, his attributes. And as you behold him through meditation on the word of God, you will be changed by the spirit of God. What is this mirror Paul speaks of? Well, in the days of Paul, you didn't have shiny, clear mirrors that you've got today. You had metal sheets and you could, as it were, see something. You could see something, but it wasn't a clear reflection. Paul uses this to say, in a sense, we see in part, don't we? But keep looking there. Keep meditating. Keep allowing the Spirit of God to open your eyes to new uh, truths to you. 
of the person of Christ. Dear friends, this is what the saints of old did. You read the Puritans, they're focused on the Lord Jesus. John Owen wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. Isaac Ambrose wrote a book called Looking Unto Jesus. Look into him, see him, view him, meditate on him. By which I do not mean imagine something about the Lord that you want to believe about him. Uh Uh-uh. I mean by means of what the word says of him. Allow the spirit of God to open the scripture to you more of Christ and you will find you'll be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus and your heart will be burning within you. May the Lord help us. Thinking back in Romans 8 and verse 28, the context of this text that I've brought to you this morning and we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's in the context, really, of suffering. When you look through Romans 8, you'll find suffering comes up, conflict, difficulty, opposition, on a number of occasions. For example, verse 17 says, If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Then verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, in that context, a few verses later, Paul goes on to say, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, we are changed by means of dwelling upon the Lord, but we're also changed by means of suffering, of difficulty, of conflict, opposition. Paul says here we know all things. And if you think of the backdrop of that being something of suffering and difficulty, he's showing us that actually these sufferings and difficulties are working for us something. And it's not as though these things work independently from the Lord, difference. It's not as though the Lord suddenly sets the wheel spinning and then takes his hands off and then all things work together. No, what he's showing us is God is behind the means. And if suffering need be the means, God will use suffering as a means in your life to bring you unto his purpose because he's determined to get you there. Why, he sent his son to die on the cross to get you there. And so suffering is one of the means that God uses in order to bring us to ultimately to sanctify us, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. Think of those who suffered in the Word of God. I was thinking of it a little bit earlier. One of the people that suffered much in the Scriptures was Joseph. When you look at Joseph's life and what happened to him, it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary how it all worked out. But here is a man who's betrayed and sold into slavery by his own brothers. His own father thinks he's dead. Sold to the Ishmaelite traders, taken to Egypt, put as a servant under Potiphar, and he does well under Potiphar. But then what happens? Potiphar's wife has eyes for him, She goes after him. He refuses her. So she tells a lie about him, which winds him up in prison for something he's never done. I mean, you cannot write this as a script for yourself, can you? You would never... This shows the authenticity of the Word of God. Because none of us naturally would come up with such a story for the one who would become a giant in the kingdom of God. So Joseph is sold into slavery. There he is in prison, confined for something he's never done. 
Then you know what happened with the baker and the butler in the prison and they had the dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams and then the butler's freed and then he forgets about Joseph in prison. Joseph is forgotten in prison until later when Pharaoh has dreams and then ultimately you know the story. Joseph is brought out to interpret the dreams and Pharaoh puts Joseph as second in command to him over all of Egypt. And ultimately Joseph's brothers come to Egypt in need of food. And Joseph recognizes them. And you remember how in the end Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. By the way, this has prophetic, a prophetic element to it. For Joseph in the scripture is a type of the Lord Jesus. But, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph makes a commentary in one statement on what had happened to him with his brothers throwing him away, as it were, to become sold in Egypt. What does he say? He says to his brothers, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. For good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You see, there was evil at work, there was godlessness at work, there was darkness at work, but Joseph had the bigger picture of what God was doing. Yes, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day. Time would fail us to mention all the examples we could bring. What about Job in the scriptures? What about Paul? Paul was imprisoned for his faith, wasn't he? He is this great man of, of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and he ends up in a Roman prison. How can you understand this? If I was Paul, I would be saying, Lord, you did it for Peter. Open the doors for me. Or I would be tempted to think, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I haven't got enough faith. I can't get the prison doors open. Peter, for Peter, the prison doors opened. Remember in Acts 12? Peter, the prison doors opened. Maybe I've not got enough faith. Paul doesn't think like that. He knows the Lord. But something happened to Paul while he was in that prison. Do you know what happened to him? He wrote letters. He wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. He wrote the letter to Colossians. He wrote the letter to Philemon. Philippians. Part of the canon of scripture. Confined of himself, men meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Now what about your life? You may feel, I can't believe it, I feel so restrained. I've got this problem that I can't get away from. This situation, I'm confined by it. It's not the result of my own sin. It's not the result that I deliberately did something against God. But I find myself in a position where I feel confined, restricted, unable to do what I'd like to do for the Lord. And we somehow feel that our afflictions by nature are the very things stopping us coming into the will of God. And the Lord has to show us by revelation, actually, I'm using this very thing to be the means of your sanctification. What about a husband, a Christian husband, whose wife is in a wheelchair? What about a wife whose husband 
is unwell and she can't leave him so freely. Is there no design in these things? Surely there is. God works all things together for good to those who love God even through suffering. How profound. Do you remember what the scriptures say? He's working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Ultimately, his purpose is being fulfilled. The ultimate example of the glory through suffering is the person of the Lord Jesus. If you looked at it from an earthly perspective, you'd be thinking, this has all gone wrong. How can the Son of God be on a cross? How can it be going to Calvary? It doesn't make any sense to me. But you remember what it says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27? For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Yes, they were doing evil, but God meant it to bring about the death of his own son on the cross in order that he might bring many sons to glory. Well, we've run out of time, really. But I want to remind you that in your difficulty, in things that are in your life that are hard, Remember, God is working all things together for good. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 and 17, our last passage. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. Do you see that word again? Working for us. Our affliction is working something. God is using the means here. Working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, May the Lord help us, each one of us, to realize that whatever we go through in our lives, whether it be suffering, opposition, difficulty, heartache, God is working in this situation. It's not as though that thing is not important in God's economy. He watches over every area of our lives. He's overseeing us to bring us to conformity unto bringing us to glory. Now I'm not here talking about that if we sin and do things our own way and rebel against God, we can therefore say, see, God's working all things for good, I can rebel against God. Well, that's foolish, isn't it? You understand, if I actually sin and I find I'm punished for the sin, I get my just desserts for what I've done wrong. We're not talking about that. But praise God if we really mean to change by his grace and repent. God gives the grace to turn from sin. And he does discipline us as a father does his children. It's a true sign that we're children of God if the Lord disciplines us. The Lord loves you enough to allow different circumstances in your life that at the time you may misconstrue but don't be tempted to believe what the enemy would pervert about those things God has set his love on you if you're born of the spirit of God you're under his grace he loves you with an everlasting love and is determined 
to conform you to the image of his Son, where you have this glorious body, yes, and a glorious change inwardly as well. Isn't it marvellous that the Lord wants us to be like him? We will never share in his deity. He alone will be worshipped. He alone. But we'll be just like him. Our elder brother, Jesus. And we'll see him. And we'll spend eternity with him. And we'll live forever praising him for his amazing grace. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things. Let us pray. Father, we've spoken about much this hour. We simply ask, O oh Lord, in your mercy and grace, you would keep with us that which has been of you, and you would remove from us anything that has not been of you. And pardon me, Lord, 